Hey there, friends. Pastor Paul Carter here from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia and the host of the End of the Word podcast. Here with a fantastic panel today to discuss the opportunities, the dangers, and the effects of social media on our children, but also on us as members of the church today. An awful lot has changed in terms of how we receive and uh, produce and consume information over the last 30 years. The first text message was sent in the early 90s. Facebook launched in 2004. The iPhone was released in 2007, and then shortly thereafter, the iPad in 2010. And so studies are just now being released analyzing the effects of these technologies on our children and on us as adults as well. And the information that we're learning now indicates that these tools are not neutral. Uh, They have changed us. They are changing us. And we want to speak about those things today. In an article released just a few days ago by American social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, he said this, from 2010 to 2014, rates of hospital admission for self-harm did not increase at all for women in their early 20s or for boys or young men. But they doubled for girls aged 10 to 14. The timing points to social media, closed quote. So we want to talk about that. We want to talk about the the impact, the effect of social media on our children, particularly, not exclusively, but particularly our teenage daughters. We want to talk about the effect that it may be having on us and on our families. Is it redeemable? Parents ask me that all the time. Uh, Is this redeemable? Can we make a few changes and keep these tools in our toolbox? Uh, Or is this something that we just need to turn away from and simply abandon and avoid altogether? Here to help me wade through this topic, uh, we have Dr. Gary Pizer. We have nurse and educator Jessica Weening. We have social media professional Sienna Brockman. Uh, her husband and a frequent voice on social media, Pastor Rob Brockman. We have pastoral student and iGen survivor, Scott Hogeveen. And uh, then my friend and social media influencer, Dr. Wyatt Graham. So thank you, panel. Thanks for being with me today. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for for having having us. Well, I quoted from uh, Jonathan Haidt just a few minutes ago. Jonathan Haidt, along with Dr. Gene Twenge, have been leading voices in terms of this uh, research. And uh, I want to read to you the, the endorsement that Jonathan Haidt gives for this book. This is a book by Gene Twenge, PhD, and the title is iGen, Why Today's Super-Connected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy, and Completely Unprepared for Adulthood. Here's the uh, recommendation by Jonathan Haidt. He says, we've all been desperate to learn what heavy use of social media does to adolescents. Now, thanks to Twenge's careful analysis, we know it is making them lonely, anxious, and fragile, especially our girls. So, Jessica, you're a healthcare worker and a child educator. Part of your job is helping uh, children, young women in particular, families understand the effect of social media. So tell us what you're seeing in your field. Uh, Tell us whether or not this assessment by uh, Twenge and Hate rings true in terms of your own experience. 
Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. It's a privilege to talk about something that is uh, absolutely pressing on my heart. Um, I do agree with the uh, research assessment um, that you've shared. Um, as a nurse of 21 years working with a pediatric population, um, I have seen an, a drastic devastating increase in hospital admissions in our teenagers. Um, I'd say in the last couple of years, it has been an increase of probably about over 90% for inpatient, um, wow. especially in uh, our eating disorder patients. Um, they are coming in very, very sick with heart rates in their 30s and 40s, and it takes us about a month to stabilize them, to get them back home. Um, and when they are admitted with us, they um, have a very strict routine, and they are not allowed their devices, um, and they have a very strict protocol that they have to abide by in order to get them stable again. So with that, I've had the opportunity purposely to spend hours with them, uh, getting to know them, hearing their hearts and their stories. And each of them have shared with me, uh, their voices have shared with me how social media has uh, negatively impacted um, their contributing to their self-harm. And things like, you know, body shaming and fat phobic messages that they're reading on social media. Um, and actually, the biggest culprit that every one of them have shared is actually TikTok. Um, really? Yeah. In 2020, there was a TikTok challenge that um, was challenging anyone, um, but obviously targeting teens to see how quick they could lose weight the most creative way. And this is what has caused so many of our girls to be admitted. Now, we've, we've seen males being admitted too, but it is mostly our teenagers. Um, but when you think about it, I mean, our teenagers are uh, going to their phones first thing in the morning. They're scrolling, looking at media, looking at other things. And it's the last thing they look at um, before they go to bed. And of course, it is having um, a negative impact on their mental um, well-being. They are uh, more depressed. They're more anxious. Um, they're having negative self-image, self-worthlessness. And we're seeing that impact, um, unfortunately, on our unit with girls coming in with with, you know, self-harm, um, eating disorders. Uh, we've had increased suicide attempts. And, you know, our, our social media is, is having a very negative impact on them. Hmm. I, I was interested to hear that you talk about TikTok. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the article that Jonathan Haidt uh, released earlier this week in The Atlantic, and then there's been a follow-up conversation on Twitter, which is ironic uh, that so much <laughs> of this conversation is happening on yeah. Twitter. Yeah. Uh, but interestingly, he... Uh, said that the research has put the finger on uh, Instagram mm -hmm. as the main, uh, when they interview people who have been admitted to the hospital, they're yeah. saying the, the, the victims of harm are most often pointing to Instagram. Now, mm -hmm. I'm 47 years old, so I don't, I, you know, Facebook is, and Twitter is about as deep as I've gotten into this, so I don't actually understand uh, Instagram and, and uh, TikTok, yeah. but what is it about those two platforms yeah. that, that seems to be creating the most harm? Uh, Gary, you, you look like you want to jump in on that. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd say there's a couple things about social media. There's a, there's a difference in, like, if you want to liken it to a medication, there's a dose response. Mm -hmm. So how much are you consuming? Um, the, the, the complications, if you will, so like eating disorders, admissions to hospital, depression, internalizing psychiatric disorders, they seem to follow a dose-response curve. So the more hours, uh, the more severe the outcome. Mm -hmm. But also the nature of it. And I think what, what some of the articles that I've read point to is these visual social media sites 
are the primary offenders for body dysmorphic issues, right? So yes. like TikTok for sure, because it's a, a, what is it, eight second video clip, but also right. Instagram, because there's pictures and selfie compositions and those kinds of things. I was gonna add to that, you know, it's fascinating how on all these social medias there's these abilities to edit, edit their looks, edit their yeah. lifestyles, which is creating this false image of who they are and they're comparing themselves to each other. And then it's just this greater ability to, you know, desensitize who they truly are mm -hmm. and creating these false images of what they're not. Yeah, like I, I heard an appalling statistic. I had no idea. The average time it takes to compose a selfie. I didn't even know you could compose <laughs> selfies. Yeah. Um, I but I need to up myself a game. I must. Anybody, anybody got a guess? Like how long people, uh, that these at-risk individuals, that's the other yeah. piece, I guess. There are sort of host susceptibility issues, if you will. So like um, th there is a makeup of a person who's sort of a more kind of risky person to give a social media right. platform to. Um, but uh, any idea how long it, a person is taking to compose a selfie? I'm guessing it's a bad number. On average, 20 minutes, according wow. to this. I, I couldn't believe yeah. that it was that long. But that, that sort of tells you something about the host susceptibility issue right. of that particular person. Yeah. But it also is giving them a, now a platform to, to sort of compound these issues. Hmm. And I think that's probably what you're seeing uh, very frequently. Sienna, I'm curious to bounce this to you because sure. you're a social media professional. You actually, yeah. your job is in this field. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what is it about these platforms that creates this kind of harm? I guess I'm wondering, is it a feature or is it a bug? Meaning, is it something we can work around or is that actually what these platforms are designed to do? Not, yeah. not necessarily the outcome of harm, but yeah. these sort of addictive uh, visual obsessions. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is it a feature or is it a bug? There's, there's so many aspects about the way that these platforms are designed that they're inherently going to bring out these kinds of results from human beings. One of my favorite sayings in the, the movie Jurassic Park, um, someone says, they didn't think to, okay, now I can't remember it, but the, <laughs> the line is great. It's, they, they wanted to know whether or not they could, they didn't think oh, to- Oh, whether they should. If whether or not they should. And I think that a lot of these social media platforms, that is the same thing is true. So. Um, one of the key aspects I think about, certainly about Facebook and Instagram, TikTok is still relatively new, so we're still figuring out sort of the, the algorithms and stuff like that. But it, Facebook and Instagram are literally designed to attract your attention and retain your attention at all times. So we talk about the addictive nature of social media. These platforms are designed to be addictive. And so they... We talk about you know young young girls and posting selfies and participating in challenges. All of that is to gain likes and comments and that sort of currency that they receive from the reaction and that feeds these platforms. And so, for example, Facebook, I think that's the most widely used in this room. Facebook will send you a push notification on your phone if you haven't been active on the platform for a certain period of time. If they notice that you haven't opened the app for a couple of minutes, they'll say, hey, Paul, Rob, who you know, just updated his status, which instantly draws you to open your phone and click on it and open it. Now, you it's, can turn those off. Is that right? You can, but there's... I've actually experienced this where with some of our clients, we'll turn them off, but then after a certain period of time, Facebook will turn them back on for you again hmm. without notifying you. Hmm. So you need to be completely on top of these platforms. So inherently, they will they are designed to attract attention and usage constantly. So it takes an incredible amount of discipline 
to be able to turn it off and turn away. So this is a question, I'm just, I'll throw it out uh, in general. I'm, I'm interested in the answer to this. I have four daughters. All of the research seems to indicate that while this is true generally, the harm lands disproportionately on young girls with these tools. Uh, why is that? Uh, thoughts, thoughts on, and maybe you're the most natural to get us started with that. Why is that? Well, our teenagers are um, working through so many hormonal changes, and they're, you know, naturally already working through security, insecurity issues, issues, who they are, who they want to be. They're watching each other. How do I look? How do I dress? How do I talk? And so when they're already working through all these hormonal and emotional changes um, and I mean, your device is in your hand. Where are you going to go to? You're going to go to your phone. You're going to go to these apps. You're going to go to social media. You're going to look. You're going to compare, and you want to try and be like other people. So, you know, it's no, it's no surprise that it's targeting this age group because they're the most vulnerable. Yeah. Anyone else want to want to jump in on there? Either, yeah. Go I ahead. might I might also just add. I think there's there's been a shift as well. Like maybe historically, young girls and teenagers would look to celebrities and sort of models in magazines, and there would be that sort of comparison game and envy game. And oh, I'm basing my self worth and my self esteem according to what I'm seeing. Now there's a shift where these aren't just faceless sort of distant celebrities that we're comparing ourselves to. Teenagers are comparing themselves to their, their own peers, their friends. They're in their own communities, in their classrooms, in the hallway, and that hits home really fast, really, really hard. And I think that that influence where, oh, well, my friend that's sitting down, that's in the classroom down the hall, got 400 likes on her photo, and I only got 12. Clearly, I'm the lame one in school. and. It, that it just cycles and cycles and, and gets worse and worse. Yeah, see, and I, I think you touched on a big thing there with the peer group issue, right? Because with, with young people, they're constantly trying to define themselves by their peer group, right? You're always looking at people in school. But now with social media, your, your peer group has widened. Right? You have a peer group of people all across the world, right? With different, with different mor morals, right? Different totally. um, developments. People who just are, live different lives than you, mm -hmm. right? But now you're comparing yourself to a global network of people. So there's so much more insecurity, mm -hmm. right, to be found through social media than just what is already inherent in um, developing young people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think some of the disproportionate harm, uh, Paul, that you were talking about, uh, it, it's reflective of the developmental needs of that particular person at that particular time. You know, like for young boys, for instance, they gravitate to video games because they're looking for the developmental tasks of mastery, autonomy, and competition, and competency. Um, and so they're, they're drawn like to that particular platform. And, and I, I think the developmental uh, stages and, and needs of, of young girls are belonging and defining self-worth, et cetera. And it does make them more vulnerable to sort of the, the more nefarious applications of social media. I think that's where the, the root is. So like as a parent, um, I'm surveying the landscape and trying to figure out what does my kid need now? What is the developmental stage they're facing now? And how can I, you know, help them to, to, to discover this on their own or, or shepherd them with it? Um, but in a more controlled way than the wild west of social media. Yeah. I mentioned, uh, I asked a question a few minutes ago, is it a feature or is it a bug? And uh, I suppose there's two different levels to that. I mean, do I think that the people at Facebook and behind Instagram are, you know, designing these things to produce harm for our children? No, I think they're designing 
these platforms to make money. Um, mm -hmm. the, the unintended consequence of that is that they've produced something that is particularly harmful. But zooming out, you know, we're all believers on this stage. Mm -hmm. And so I think if you ask the question, is it a feature or is it a bug, and you target that question to the spiritual realm, I think, I think it's a feature. Uh, meaning I, I do feel as though this, uh, we, we do have to somewhat approach this as a spiritual issue and, and, and realize that, that, that this is an attack on our children. It not, not, meaning I don't think we should direct our, our anger or our concern towards Zuckerberg or whoever else has designed these things. People have been wanting to make money for a really long time. We just have to be aware that there, there are spiritual aspects to this that we need to be mindful of as parents, as, as those who are watching over our homes. I think that's important for us uh, to figure out. Sienna, did you want to jump in on that feature bug conversation again? Is that? Uh, no, I was actually just going to kind of build off of that idea. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right, and I think that because social media is something that's so new, at the onset it became, oh well, this is great. This is a way that I could share pictures of my cat and my new right. baby with my mom who lives in Montreal, and she's six hours away, and so she, you know, it's a way for me to keep in touch. And it's it's morphed and in, into this giant dinosaur now that's yeah. like kind of constantly changing and really, really dangerous. And I think that just like anything else, um, I actually often compare it to the usage of alcohol. Like there's a way that you can drink and use God, uh, alcohol in a God-glorifying way, but we have to intentionally teach our teenagers yeah. how to responsibly consume that or when they're an adult. And there's, there's a level where people now teenagers especially, and even children need to be taught how to engage on these platforms, how to use them. It's not just download it on your phone and it's a free for all. There's a very intentional, I think even, even a discipleship process that needs to go into teaching us, even adults, how do we, how do we use this? What's a right. godly way as a Christian to use these platforms? Well, and that's, that's a good transition because that's actually what I want to talk about. It, I don't think, I think a lot of parents, when they first hear this. I mean, <laughs> my initial reaction after reading this book was, I'm moving to the Arctic, <laughs> somewhere where there's no Wi-Fi, no uh, cell phone house. signal, <laughs> right? And, and I totally get that. Uh, at the same time, I, there's no way, for my wife and I, one of our great frustrations, because we, you know, Dr. Gary and I were talking about this offline, we were the first generation to try to figure this out. We are 100% working without a map here. Um, my oldest daughter is literally the, the first, was born in the year when this began. So she, she is literally the first generation of kids that had access to cell phones, that, that had access to social media, et cetera. We were, at every step of, this, of the evolution of these technologies, we were trying to figure out, like, what in the world do we do here? And, and you can't, it was it's not the sort of thing where I could call my parents and be like, hey, what did you do when I was a kid? It did not come up. Like, it was not a thing. And so we were 100% trying to figure this out on the go. And I totally understand when parents begin to deal with the scope of the challenge, thinking, all right, well, we're just not going there. We're going to put a big tinfoil dome around our house so no technology signals can get in or out. Good luck with that. Try sending your kid to high school. One of our frustrations was the school system started requiring and assuming these tools in the classroom. So whereas, you know, I remember when I was a kid, there, we'd have conversations. So we're going to do trivia time to see who can remember the most capital cities in North America. And it would, it would play a game and have cue cards that we taped to the chalkboard. Uh, okay, now there's an app on your phone where the teacher makes questions and you, and it's the first one who can answer the answer on their smartphone. So 
they're doing their class discussions with smartphones. They're, nobody has textbooks anymore, which used to drive me bananas, still drives me bananas. Uh, instead, they, they, they're accessing the class notes on their phone in class via these technologies. So you can't go the route of just isolating. So what are some tools that can help parents limit exposure, uh, encourage the correct uh, use of these tools without harm? What are some tools that are useful? What are some techniques? What are some guidelines? What are some limitations? Absolutely. So we have four teenagers in our home, and so we've been navigating um, the impact of devices, when to get them, um, and how to approach this uh, entire device situation. Um, so first of all, it's absolutely important that we get a tool such as like there's Net Nanny, or Disney Circle, Canopy, Custodio. That is absolutely uh, a necessity um, if you're when you start to put uh, devices into the hands of your teenagers, um, because this will help with monitoring and putting in boundaries, which, which is an absolute must. Um, and our, you know what, our teens are smart. They, uh, even with those boundaries and monitoring, they uh, have rebellious natures and they're gonna figure out ways to get around that and to cover up their tracks. So um, some other important things that we have put in place is, you know, time limits on their phones and no cell phones in bedrooms. Um, they <laughs> They need to ask about what apps they're gonna put on their phone and we limit to one social media outlet only because the more uh, the more slippery the slope is going to be. And what do you consider a social media app? Because that's there's some... Absolutely. Absolutely. Confusion around that. Is sure. YouTube a social media app? Is SoundCloud a social media app? How do yeah. we, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and that's, that's and you know what, that's a question we're still working through. I mean, yeah. from Facebook, Instagram, yeah. Snapchat, TikTok. So we've, you know, in our household, uh, they all just, they're all just on Instagram and that's it. And then I'm on it with them as well yeah. so that I can see what their actions are and uh we have all of their passwords, and without them knowing, we will just take their cell phones from them yeah. and hop in there and just uh, have a look to see what they're doing, what they're watching. That's an important rule. We've done this. So we've tried. We, we used Circle for years, found that very helpful. Uh, we've recently moved away from Circle. We're looking into Canopy, you mentioned right now, yes. doing a little research on that. That looks very helpful. Circle, we've run into some problems with with our new provider. But So these are there are a variety of tools. You have to find the one that works for you. But one of the most important rules that we have in our home is that I can at any time come up to you or your mother, take the phone out of your hands and do a quick history search on the last. And, and there's, if you complain, you just don't get it back. Like this is just, That's right. and what about privacy? Get your own house, get a job, move out if you want privacy. Yep. Uh, here you don't have privacy. Let's, I don't know, put that on the table. And so we will, we will take a look. And if there's anything we need to talk about and make adjustments, we, we will. I think that is is just a huge, and just everyone do it once every week, two weeks, do that. Yeah, we, we've said if the password changes your phone, it's gone. Yeah. If the browser history is ever scrubbed, it's gone. Right. Um, yeah. I do want to add one more thing. Probably yeah, the biggest please. tool that I want to encourage as a parent um, is 
uh, discipling. So this is the biggest tool, more than all the other things that we've just talked about. Um, and I know, Sienna, you've touched on it, but discipling our kids. Um, our teenagers uh, need us just as much as our little ones do, and actually even more so in an emotional way. They need us to be discipling them. They need us to be praying with them and praying with them daily. One of the things that we do is uh, once a month we pray through their rooms and just inviting the Holy Spirit to put you know, their, his presence there to uh, just reveal to us as parents that if there's things in their rooms that should not be there, their phones, whatever. Um, building relationships with our teenagers is crucial. We need to be proactive, being engaged, communicating with them, being involved, because this is also part of being accountable with how we're using our time and how we are, you know, um, applying biblical truths to the things that they're dealing with in their lives. And that also applies to how to navigate using a cell phone and putting boundaries and self-regulating. And we also need to be the, exam the examples as parents with how we're using our time because they are watching us. Dr. Carey, I wanted to give you the chance to talk a little bit. You, you mentioned a concern around sleep. I heard you say amen when she said the no cell phones in the room, uh, which some of our viewers might might think is, is related to one concern, whereas actually I think it's related to another concern. So uh, give me your thoughts yeah, on the, the sleep absolutely. issue. So yeah, the no cell phones in your, in your bedroom is a great idea because you don't want kids looking at porn and right. stuff like that. That's an obvious one. But also one of the, one of the, the interesting mechanisms and we think uh, social media elicits harm is, is it erodes sleep. Right, so the longer you've got the cell phone in your hands, the less sleep you get. And there's a bunch of actually psychological and biological mechanisms for that. Uh, the quick fix is just don't have the thing in your room. Blue light exposure keeps you awake. Uh, you know, psychologically arousing uh, stimulus, whether it's a video game or an interactive uh, texting kind of thing, will keep you awake longer, and it basically erodes your sleep. And you can imagine, I like to tell people, it's impossible to be a Christian on two hours sleep, right? Because like it's really hard to have patience and kindness and all these things when you're sleep deprived. Well, teens are chronically sleep deprived. Like the, the stats are over 30% are missing two or three or four hours of sleep of what they need. Uh, the National Sleep Foundation, we've got references for that if you want. They, they've got sort of how much everybody needs. But I think that's the thing. There's a, like a biological need to sleep. And when you're on s social media, especially at night, it's gonna be a lot less. So that would be the, the quick prescriptions. No cell phone in the, in the bedroom for sure. I would say all screens off, ideally an hour before bedtime. And that just helps with that arousal and having a good bedtime routine. Again, that's yeah. going to preserve And that's just sleep. not for kids, interestingly. A couple of years ago, yeah. I actually went to see my family doctor. This was when I was in my early 40s because I wake up very early in the morning to, to pray. And I was finding all of a sudden, I was having a hard time going to sleep at night. And so I was getting to the point where I was, only, I was operating on probably four, four hours sleep. And I, I went to Grant, and I said, what's wrong with me? Am I, do I, what? And that was one of the, I think it was one of the suggestions, or he directed me to, um, to some research. And one of them was, don't look at your phone, because this, this new technology, again, I didn't know, and I wasn't aware of how it was affecting me. And I'm just sharing this because I'm in my 40s. Yeah. I'm, I'm not 13. It's a melatonin thing, right? You get uh, yeah. suppression of melatonin release with, with light at night and that kind of and, thing. And one of the resources that I consulted said it, it's so helpful to read for half an hour before you go to sleep. So don't look at your device an hour before you go to bed. 
read for half an hour. It sounds like old-fashioned advice, but it's remarkably yeah, helpful. It is. It's just we call it sleep hygiene. Uh, we've got a yeah. link uh, that we'll have in the description. I think that's what you say on a podcast. A link in the description. Yeah. Uh, for the National Sleep Foundation, Episode just notes. it's yeah. it's it's motherhood stuff. And what I yeah. mean by motherhood is non-glamorous and essential. Yeah. Right. That's uh, just stuff that's just wise old-timey business. Yeah. I would say, uh, just to add a couple things in terms of toolkit to how to navigate social media, I think the discipling piece is the, is the giant piece. It's the only piece yeah. if you had to pick one. Uh, but there's a couple other things. I would say coming up with a family-specific media plan, uh, and that's a negotiation that you take on, I think that's a really important phenomenon. I would liken, um, I think one of the great metaphors for discussing social media is it is a consumption thing. It's like a diet. You want a healthy diet. Well, you want a healthy social media diet. Right. And how does that work? And, and I think where it enters into this conversation, the analogy is sort of, um, you know, uh, you, you, a teenager doesn't eat right uh, at 17 years old with an externally enforced plan with a, with a hammer, right? They, they eat right because you taught them from when they were young. And you, you've shown them good eating habits all throughout their life. I think it's the same thing with, with social media consumption. You've got to show them this kind of stuff as, you're, as they're developing, right? And discipling. Uh, so I think that's a real key thing. Sure. Uh, and then I guess the other thing uh, is that there is no neutral uh, consumption of media. It's always affecting something, yeah. right? So like... Um, we, we, we sort of read Deuteronomy 6 and we say, you know, that we're, we're as a human being, a body, a mind, and a, and a soul. And social media affects all of those things. It affects your body biologically, like we discussed, your mind, obviously, yeah. by the inputs of facts or misfacts, or, or what is it, fake news or alternate facts. Yeah. I, don't, yeah. I can't even keep up with all those things. But it also affects your soul, right? Mm -hmm. It affects what you desire, what you love. Yeah. And I think this is the piece that I find the most traction in my life is um, James K. Smith wrote a bunch of great books, Desiring the Kingdom, uh, as well as You Are What You Love. And in that, he really articulates a vision where things like marketing really affect what we love and then our life priorities and our spiritual priorities. And that's where social media really scares me. Yeah. I don't know what you guys. Yeah, so I, uh, in terms of uh, book or resources, uh, I'm going to suggest this is another really helpful resource. It's uh, Jeffrey Bilbro, Reading the Times. And uh, it, the subtitle is A Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News. And it's really about the, the, the way that we receive information and the various mediums that we're exposed to, how they have actually affected observable change in us as a human society. So, yeah, very, very useful. I want to turn the corner just a little bit. We've been speaking mostly about, you know, parenting, and we've been speaking mostly about younger children. Uh, I, I want to turn the corner a little bit and focus on young adults. Scott, I referred to you in my introduction as an iGen survivor. I did a little research. You were born in 1993, which means that actually you are two years too old uh, to be understood as an iGenner. You are actually a very young millennial. Uh, so I, I think I've, I've often referred to you as a, you know, iGen, so I'll, I'll take that back. You're a, you're a young, luckily the millennials are, are, have issues as well. So, but, but you grew up, really, uh, when all of these tools were being introduced. You were the first generation of teenager to have access to a smartphone. Uh, the iPhone came on the market in 2007. Uh, which was the year you turned 14. So how did that uh, affect your teenage experience as a young man? Uh, what did it make harder 
Uh, and, and what did you learn from that? Because again, like we were talking as parents, we were figuring this out on the fly. You were figuring this out on the fly as a young man. So what did you learn that you can share with others? Yeah, thanks, Paul. The, um, it's funny because you say uh, the iPhone came out in 2007. I remember in grade nine, our, t our math teacher would get mad at us saying, you won't always have a calculator in your pocket. <laughs> and two years later, we did. Right? <laughs> Every single one of us had a calculator in our pocket. Right? The smartphones changed the world. Like, it's so useful. The amount of tools, the amount of access you have to information, to all kinds of things in your pocket is incredible. But it's also wildly dangerous. Right? And as a teenager, like, that's, I, fell, I fell afoul of that. Like, that's one of the greatest dangers for our young men is that you know, you have access to the internet, right? You have access to anything you could possibly want, right? And, you know, Jeremiah 17.9, right? The heart is deceitful above all things, right? The heart doesn't want good things. And so that, that's a challenge, right? A challenge for, for every young man. Um, and I'm no stranger to that. And just as you pointed out, um, right, it's so easy to get around, right, to find all the loopholes. You know, I found how devious my own heart was, right? My own, my own flesh trying to, trying to get around all the filters that I would try and put in place, try to, you know, maintain my, uh, my purity as a Christian. And so that was a, yeah, a challenge that I, I struggle with. But, you know, growing up with the phones, you, you become fairly tech savvy. Like, I know all the loopholes. And then I found ways to block all the loopholes, right? And so I've kind of, I found, you know, the hard way, how, how devious the heart is, right? How good it is at finding ways to get at what it wants. And so talking about tools and things to, to help protect your kids, right? I, I really like Covenant Eyes because they have a screenshot accountability function. So they take pictures randomly, and you don't know when, of your phone and send it to an accountability partner. So someone's always getting updates on what you're doing. Right on top of that, you can actually go into, on Apple, you can go into and delete the app store. Right, so that way you can actually protect yourself and your children, right, from downloading apps, right, the other apps, because that's how they get around stuff, right? It's the install and delete apps, and there's so much access. Right, on Google, they have uh, the family link. So similarly, what it does is you actually have to, um, if you want to download something, if your kid wants to download something, they have to ask for permission through the app. So it actually sends a request to your phone, and then you can approve or deny it. So your kids can't download apps without your permission. So there are ways, there are tools, but like you guys said, there is no, there's nothing that beats, you know, discipleship. Right? And for, for young people, there's nothing that beats accountability, right? Prayer and the word and Christian community, right? Those are your best tools for, for growth and even for social media, right? We need that accountability just in, in seeing our, our screen time, right? How many of us are, would be embarrassed, you know, to turn on the screen time function and show someone else what our screen time is, right? Because it's alarmingly high. So I think accountability, not only with purity, but also with just use of social media in general, right? The things that we're saying, the things that we're posting, right? We, as Christians, we need to to hold one another accountable. I told my wife recently, there's good news. My phone said that I increased by 25% of my screen time use, so it was great news. I got, I got better. <laughs> she didn't take it positively. Um, the one thing I want to add, uh, I grew up when the internet was becoming mainstream. So as a teenager, as it was, as it was becoming normal. And one thing that my parents didn't do, which they wouldn't have known to do it, by the way, I'm not saying it's a bad thing per se, that I would want to do is, um, have some insight there. In other words, I was given a device that said you can know all data, all information, instantly, anywhere in the world, and there's nothing to prevent you from looking at it. And uh, that's actually not good for us. First of all, I can't handle a trillion pieces of information. I can barely handle two or three. So what does it do to a young mind when you have all information at all times coming to you? 
So I do think as a parent, I mean, there's some good tips here. We talked about canopy and circle and all these things, but I think at a very basic level, parents today need to have some insight into the technological world. Even if you're not a tech-savvy person, just know what it is and what it does. Like, what mm -hmm. is the internet? What are social media apps? And how can you uh, find solutions? Now, I think we talked about some of them, but there are ways that you can... You can give your kids devices that have GPS, uh, text messaging, and music, but nothing else. There's no way to get around it. You can create servers in your house that only prevent 10 websites even possible in your house. So the more tech savvy you are, I think the more help and more discipleship you can give. I'm a bit of more of a minimalist in terms of what I'll probably let my kids access, but I'm not a, a Luddite, meaning I will let them access. Uh, but I do think using the technological tools that we have to disciple our kids is, is key. Yeah, and I think one of the simple prescriptions is um, find a mentor. You know, we are the first generation, yeah. but like all the parents listening and watching out there, th th there's somebody in your church that's encountering the same issues. Find an elder, find somebody you respect, and they can help you navigate these things. Find a tech person to come in and install this stuff yeah. on your house, right? Like yeah. to limit some of these things. There are plenty of options for a Christian in the church. They have to be part of that church community, though, to access these things. Just as a quick note, you don't have to be the tech-savvy person if you have a friend in your church who is. Because right. realistically, not all of us maybe can be. But it just needs to happen. It's like yeah. almost yeah. a necessary part of parenting if you're going to let technology in your house, that is. The one thing I would really add, we did talk about sleep, is I think sleep and social media use are connected in a vital way. Meaning social media is a coping mechanism when you're stressed and tired and sick or whatever else. And so getting good sleep, finding patterns to get, overcome that, and knowing the facts about sleep are helpful. So Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, is a hugely helpful book for me because it lays out all the deleterious things about not sleeping and like how it basically just destroys your body. Yeah. And so learning those things and realizing how important sleep is, getting phones out of your room, can give you the kind of willpower that you need to follow through with the plans that you mentioned, or at least hinted at anyways. And I think uh, getting less sleep than we need is so easy, but getting enough sleep is actually a way to overcome and to control your social media use because you have more self-control the more hours of sleep that you have. Yeah, and, and rates of mood disorders, depression, anxiety, exactly, they're linear, linearly related to, to sleep. And ADD, like, I mean, what does it do? It makes you anxious, irritable, obnoxious, all these things that, like, it just ups the dial on ADD. So if you've got a kid with attention deficit, you really got to watch the sleep and really yeah. got to watch this, the social media uh, use because they are like a susceptible host. They are wired to get addicted to this thing and wired to, to get damaged by this thing. So it's, it's shepherding it well because yeah. they will interact with it yeah. um, and you want to give them the tools to interact with it for the rest of their lives. Yeah. I'll just give you one really brief illustration. Yeah. If you let your three-year-old watch Caillou, they will become like Caillou. Yes. And... Um, that's just a TV show they watch for 30 minutes once a week or whatever Or it Peppa is. Pig, they'll start speaking with an English accent. Well, yeah, they will. So, uh, it is fascinating. You think that's just a TV show. Imagine yeah. if they can be a part of an interactive world in which their desires are being shaped by the algorithmic pull to want and desire certain things according to an algorithm that merely associates attention with digital clicking. Yeah. There's, no re there's no reason behind an algorithm, by the way. There's no why. They're just as association for further clicks yeah. uh, and further desiring products and all that. But as parents, we actually want to reason for things, right? So an algorithm, it's not a person. It can't reason. It can just associate behaviors with certain ends 
for capital exploitation. But parents, we actually want a reason why you would use social media and why you would watch TV shows because it's good for you, because it's relaxing, et cetera. I just want to quickly ju jump in on, on the conversation about the algorithm. So you touched on this as well, Paul, like this idea that these corporations, these are organizations, these are businesses with a bottom line and agendas. And the algorithm, yes, it's, it's, it is a bunch of robots that are sort of putting one plus one equals two together. But we do want to be careful that there is actually ultimately a negative impact on the algorithm. Like your, the algorithm isn't all of a sudden gonna give your child scriptural verses and biblical <laughs> verses in the feed. It's just because that's just not prevalent on the internet. Unless again, you're a pastor. I, one of my favorite stories is when, I, when Rob and I first started dating and I, I scrolled through his Facebook feed and I was like, this is insane. I couldn't believe the amount of, of biblical ads and, and ads for seminary. And I was like, what? Like, it was so the opposite of what I was getting coming from liberal Montreal, Quebec, you know, no Christian kind of community over there. It was the That's opposite. So we just want to be careful, too, when we say, like, oh, it's just like a, a harmless robot. It's, it's not. Like, there is, um, there is some kind of agenda that is sort of being pushed there, so yeah, we want it, to be careful with it's that. It's not just a capitalist agenda. As a Christian, again, we get yeah. we see the universe wildly different. Like, I think of just what you do with, with ministering to folks with eating disorders. Like, that is a absolutely intelligent, demonic system that has yielded that outcome, yes. right? Like, you need a societal male gaze that pressures women. You need uh, a media over here that's going to create a certain image. Then you need social media over here that's going to reinforce that. Like, there is a demonic intelligence yeah. behind some of these harm outcomes. Right. And as Christians, we get to see that. I, I try to tell people that in, in the circles I fly in as a physician, and you kind of get laughed at, but you, you do see the intelligence there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Rob, Rob I, did you want to jump in on that? Yeah, just, just a thought, like kind of circling back to the original kind of as iGen generation, which I'm, I'm a millennial, but I... Yeah, the, I remember the internet kind of like coming onto the scene. And so as a young... 14.4 modem, baby. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> 30 minutes to download a 3.5 megabyte song. Yeah. Uh, I remember all that. And one, yes, like I think pornography certainly has been one of the grievous consequences of the iPhone generation and the increase of pornography. But I just think a lot of these social media platforms have fueled other temptations that we don't often even talk about, now thinking like, even just like a platform like Instagram that kind of builds itself off of envy and coveting and looking and going, and it's not just women. I mean like the rise in, in like hair transplants and guys taking injections, you know, like for like muscles. I mean, we, like this is skyrocketed predominantly due to social media if you look into this stuff. And so we're just, it's, it's all over the place. And I really do see, it's like, we, we talk a lot about pornography, but we don't talk about a lot of like the boasting that we do on social media and the pride and, and trying, to, trying to present a avatar version of ourselves that's perfect. Like, and I think we kind of, the pornography thing, we'll like put up accountability in our lives and I'll have, like Sienna's my covenant eyes partner. And so I've, I've governed that and I, she's watching that, but who's watching what I'm saying? Like, who's watching how I'm treating other people on social media? Where's my accountability for that? Those are grievous sins, too, that we don't really even think about. And, and I've just seen this in the past few years on social media growing, 
just how Christians are just like these sorts of anger, slander, vitriol, boasting, like it's just blown up and like we're all just like, well, as long as you're not watching porn. You're good. Yeah. The pandemic has really cranked the volume up on these sort of acceptable sins, right? Well, that's perfect. That's the transition I want to make now anyway. Uh, Rob, thanks for bringing that up. I I want to be careful uh, on two fronts. Number one, I don't want to give the impression that social media is just a parenting issue. Right? As though it's, it's not bad for us or it's not having an effect on us. Uh, Rob, you, you brought it up. If you're, if you're a, a 40 or 50 year old parent, you might think, okay, well, uh, you know, pornography is not my front burner issue and sleep deprivation, <laughs> not too many parents are uh, <laughs> right, uh, scrolling through at uh, two in the morning. They're, they're asleep at 10 or wanting to be. And yet, uh, we have to be very mindful of, of how this is affecting us as well. And, and so I, I want to kind of turn the corner there. And uh, Wyatt, we'll start with you. Uh, what, are, what are some of the things that we need to be mindful of? How is social media affecting us as adults in terms of, of our discourse, our interactions, our character, as, uh, as Rob brought up? Yeah, I mean, so, so social media is here to stay. It's never going to go away, I don't think. Um, there are people trying to create more humane social media platforms in which the algorithm doesn't shape your desires, but rather you're more manually doing things. So that's kind of the future prospect. But how has it actually affected our, our discourse? Well, if this was tw- even just 20 years ago, hmm. and I heard that you, you know, preached a sermon that was weird, yeah. I may call you, and then we might meet two months later for coffee, or I might see you at an event next year and we could talk about it. That gives you and I time to cool down, relax, yeah. think about it, yep. forget. Okay, during the last 22 months, we've been simultaneously isolated physically, and at the same time, we have near instantaneous data at our fingertips, right? So that creates a weird communication thing. So you live in Aurelia, uh, I live in Hamilton, and yet on social media, I'm, you're right here in front of me. And so if you say something I don't like, I don't need to call you or wait till next year when we're at a conference together. I can immediately say something. Mm. I might misunderstand you, whatever it is, but it doesn't really matter because social media rewards controversy. And the, mm. more, con- uh, uh, the more comments and the more yeah. whatever's happening, it will actually be shared more and more and the algorithm will point it towards people. So it is, yeah. it is tilted towards sharing controversial takes. Yeah, I had, I, that's fascinating and important for us to understand this and to learn. Um, I had somebody say recently um, that, you know, oh, it seems like your, your social media had a lot to say about something. I don't remember what it was. It was something controversial, maybe, maybe pandemic-related. And I went back through my feed, and I thought, my, uh, like, 48 of my last 50 posts have been Bible verses, because so, I do the RMM thing. And so, you know, every morning I tend to post a, a verse that was meaningful to me from my readings. So 48 of the last 50 were Bible verses. And then there were you know, like a, a link to a uh, COVID article on CBC and stuff. But they only saw those things. Uh, I guess the algorithm has figured out they're, they're not interested in, in Paul's Bible verses, but they are interested in everything COVID related. And so it affects our perception of other people. We start thinking, this guy is all about that, when in fact, that's not the case. Facebook really knows what bugs me. <laughs> like, it's really good. 
It's really good at feeding me. By the me. way, Twitter must think that I love you because right. every time I turn on Twitter, the first two tweets are one from Rob and one from like baseball history. Like, <laughs> I guess that's it. That's what go. Twitter thinks. But that's it. And that's how kind of the algorithm algorithm works. It feeds us what we know. Like if I go online and I see a nice picture of a cat, I'm not a cat guy, so Facebook knows it's not going to get me. But if I see somebody acting like the fool and raging after somebody, that's good. I'm going to sit there and read that for 30 minutes. Well, Facebook knows that, so it's going to kick me that content like a drug dealer, you know? And that's the danger of it is now I'm just filling my mind constantly on, the, on these platforms with this stuff. Yeah, and it can it can really uh, form unhealthy subcultures. Yeah. Like, I've, Jess, you see this with the pro anorexia or pro anti sites and this kind of stuff. Like, they they generate and maintain uh, subcultures that maybe normally wouldn't have the same traction. Part of, part of the problem, Rob, that that you mentioned too is is we love controversy. Right, and that's that's the issue, right? Facebook knows that we we enjoy it. Like we're gonna read those posts. We like reading the comments when people are fighting and going at it. And that's a problem with us, right? And that it's a, it's a heart issue, right? But that's that's one of the difficulties of social media is that it takes all our heart issues and it amplifies them to the world, right? And so we're seeing, you know, we're seeing everyone else's sin on full display and our sins getting on full display, and it's just messy, right? Yeah, I think I think social media in general gives us so much opportunity to sin, just so much, whatever it is, whatever, if it's envy, pride, lust, boastfulness, um, slander against your brother, like we've seen so much of that over COVID, there's so much opportunity. And the way that the algorithms work is it fuels whatever issue that you're struggling with, whatever sin you have, 90% chance that Facebook's algorithm will fuel that. So like you said, hey, if I, if I have a, you know, this problem where I, I spend so much time watching people argue on Facebook, Facebook's going to keep pumping that on your feed. If I am a teenage girl and I have self-image issues and I'm reading up about anorexia, maybe I'm anorexic, whatever, Facebook's going to keep pumping that kind of content to you. So whatever it is that you're spending time on, Facebook will continue to show that kind of content to you. And same thing with Instagram, same thing with TikTok. All these algorithms work the same way. So again, it's it, because there's so much opportunity for sin, it, it, we talk about putting up all these sort of boundaries and stuff with our kids, and I don't have a child yet, so I, I, I won't speak on that, but I will say that the heart issue is the number one first thing that you gotta you gotta address sin and the the want and the desire to fight sin in your life because then that will inform how you can then filter and interact on these platforms. It's interesting that so before social media, most of us kind of know about verbal and nonverbal communication. So in scripture, mm. if you weep with those who weep, that might be kind of a nonverbal type of thing that can show compassion and care. Yeah. Verbal is you know using our tongue to actually talk to one another, yeah. and yet social media removes both of those kinds of communication. And so you could be an, an, an anonymous avatar and go online. And because social media rewards fiery and controversial takes, it seems to be a place in which we don't have the nonverbal and verbal communication uh, barrier that kind of helps and grounds us, grounds us, keeps us accountable, and actually activates the sort of communication where you can anonymously say whatever you want to someone. Uh, it has a bit of a revelatory function because it reveals where our heart is because I don't have to have any social stigma or shame for yeah. you maybe looking at me if I say something mean to Paul over here. Because, you know, online they might not know who I am. Or even if they do, I've seen this, 
people still don't care. Like, even if your name's on it, it feels like it doesn't matter. So you can, I know people where you meet them in person, they're just lovely and kind, and then you watch them online, and they're like an entirely different person. They seem to go to all the Bible verses that say, don't fight, don't be pugnacious, etc., cross them out, and then when they go on Twitter, they can activate those, uh, the Bible without those verses, and in real life, they're great. So it's, it's just an odd reality. You're, you're right. It's the difference between a one-to-one impersonal dynamic and how interactions used to take place in a group. I mean, the, the normal experience of learning what's appropriate and what's not is to, to read sort of the faces of people around you. So going back to when I started ministry in 1994, if you were in a room of pastors and, and you said something that came off as a little arrogant or critical, you could immediately read that in the faces of the people in the room. They'd be like, there, there'd be eyebrows raised, there, there'd be necks going back, Somebody might even put an arm on your shoulder and when you're, if you've been talking too long as a like, whoa, tone down there. None of that happens in these, these, these new chambers where conversation is happening. Here's a, a biblical illustration that might feel odd. Genesis 38, Tamar and Judah. Hmm. Why did they both sin and easily do so? There was a veil over her face. Hmm. There was, they, if they knew each other, that uh, Judah, uh, Tamar was the daughter-in-law of, of Judah, they would never have had sex and, and he would never have impregnated her. But there was, there was a veil over her face. They were anonymous. He was traveling. They would never see each other again was, was the assumption, of course, probably. And so he could sin freely because it didn't matter. There's no consequences. And she yeah. could too, I suppose. And yet there was a veil. Yeah, interesting. And so social media provides that veil either by anonymous communication or a communication that you think is anonymous because you never think someone on your church or, or work will be seeing your, your social media. But in fact, increasingly they are and people will lo- have and will continue to lose job opportunities or their jobs because of social, social media. Well, and there's a huge disconnect between... Like, we, we don't think the fruit of the Spirit applies to our online. So, and I just, I just keep seeing it over and over. And it's like, like you're talking about self-control. Like, which is a fruit of the Spirit. Right, which is a fruit of the Spirit. Why would we not? Like, and this is a habit that I have is I'll just save tweets now before actually posting them. Like, yeah. I'll just draft them because maybe this is not a great idea. And I'll just sit on this for a couple days before I post it. But social, like, if I wanted to create a platform that was guaranteed to cause arguments, it would be Twitter. Mm -hmm. 250 characters, you can't nuance your argument, you just give kind of a hot take, and then like it's the perfect thing to create uh, a culture of a lack of self-control. And Wyatt, you brought up a a great point with that illustration as well, is the the idea of consequence. Because social media removes the consequence. Well, not removes it, but it distances the consequence. Right, so, so often we don't actually, you can make a hot take, you can make a really inflammatory, slanderous post, and you won't feel any negative, you'll feel only positive feedback from that, because you'll get a bunch of likes, you'll get a bunch of shares, right? There is only positive feedback, whereas in the real world, if you say something like that, you will receive only negative consequences, right? But social media changes the game. Yeah, yeah there, there is a depersonalizing uh, element to being online, right? Like, I think the pandemic has taught us uh, a lot of that, right? Like, um, I think I'm very grateful for social media during the pandemic, like being able to Skype and those kinds of things. There's very positive elements there, but it's not the same as face-to-face, right? And so uh, we lament that on one hand when we're talking about using social media with grandma, but it gives us license to 
to do things that we normally wouldn't on the flip side because of that depersonalization. Well, and that's a perfect transition into that. We've got sort of two bases I want to try and cover before we wrap up, and, and they're, they're not unrelated. And Gary, you've uh, led us well into, into this one. I want to sort of reflect on social media in the church over the last 22 months, so over the course of this pandemic. Uh, on the one hand, I think it's been not just helpful, indispensable. You know, Wyatt, I remember when the pandemic first hit in early March uh, or mid-March and everything was shutting down and all the rules were coming out and, the, and everyone was trying to figure out how does this apply to the church and does it apply to the church, we hosted a Facebook Live event. That was one of the first things we did and it was incredibly well engaged. Uh, and so we couldn't have navigated this pandemic without social media. Well, I mean, you, you think the most frequent comparison, of course, is the Spanish flu of 1920 or 1918 to 20. Pastors had to go like window to window and shout out, are you doing okay? And how are you doing? They, they, they posted sermons in the newspaper. That was, I mean, think if, if well, given the lockdowns that, that we've uh, been through, if we didn't have social media, how that would have affected our people. So, you know, you talk about Skype and, and how many seniors who had to be extra careful would have been completely isolated from their church and from their family if, if not for these tools. So on the one hand, we could say, wow, if not for social media, where, where would we have been over the last 22 months? On the other hand, it's also probably been the worst thing about this pandemic. You know, I've had countless conversations countless conversation with pastor friends of mine who said, you know, 20 months ago, I was really good friends with pastor so-and-so. Now, I think he wants to eat me. Like, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not, so, and, and, and you say, how did that happen? And it's just, this is stuff that's happened on social media. So let's reflect on that. The good, the bad, the ugly over the last 22 months, our journey with social media in a time of pandemic and stress. Thoughts, what, is, what has been good, what has been bad, if this ever happens again, and, and Lord, make it never happen again. <laughs> but if it ever happens again, what, what do we know now that, that might help us do better next time around? Let's start with you, Wyatt, because you manage, arguably, I, I don't know, but I would assume the largest online and social media Christian presence in Canada, and it has been a journey uh, <laughs> over the last 20 months. So do you, you tell us what you've learned. Hmm. That was very good. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll give you like a, like, so I'll start at the individual level. So yeah. if you're an individual, a master social media, meaning on Twitter, Turn off how things are fed to you. Make it uh, asynchronous and manually presented to you instead of algorithmic, algorithmically. Um, create lists of people you want to follow. So I create a list of like publishers, medical people, finance people, etc. And you click those lists and you're manually seeing everything that you want to see from experts. Uh, only follow people that are, like if you love baseball, baseball. Only follow people that maybe share great books and ideas. Don't follow people who are just explosive all the time. Mm -hmm. Same thing's true about Facebook, Instagram, whatever you're using. I think most of us feel like we need to say yes to everyone who friends us or everyone who wants to communicate with us. We have no boundaries whatsoever, but in real life, you maybe wouldn't let this person in your house and right. with your family. So why would you let them in, in social media? So pause there. I want to translate what you've just said for the parent who doesn't really understand right. these tools very well. So for example, this is something I've recently learned, that I picked up a whole, because of the, the end of the word stuff and the stuff I write for TGC, I picked up a whole bunch of friends I don't really know. Like, when I started on Facebook, it was basically my friends from high school, my cousins who were living abroad, and, you know, a couple pastor friends. And then to that were added all these people I don't really know very well. 
But I didn't understand that there were levels that, to, to Facebook that you could manipulate. So I'm at the place now where I, anything I post about my family uh, is just to a very small group. Basically, the orig my original circle of Facebook friends, cousins, et cetera, friends from high school, friends from uh, you know, my, my church, et cetera. So there's a way to do that. You can, you can make a custom list. But also, instead of just liking everything, you can create follows list. Just explain what that means. Yeah, so on Twitter, you can just create a list and you add people individually to it. So I have people who are maybe like medical researchers for the pandemic, right. and then I only see the 20 people that I'm curious about. Yeah. Or I have publishers that I like because I like books, and I click that. And therefore, when I go on Twitter, I'm only seeing what I've manually created. And you can even change how your timeline's presented to you on Twitter. Facebook's much harder. The way to get around that is uh, I have apps that completely go nuclear and delete everything on my social media. I roughly run them like once a month. So all my tweets disappear. Everything I've ever liked on Facebook disappears, posted, mm. et cetera. And therefore, they have no information by which they can judge what they think that I want to see. And so I'm a bit, I'm, I'm freed up from can, that. Let's get that in the show notes, because that sounds awesome. That sounds yeah, uh, you, yeah, you got to do that for all your social media. Especially, yeah. I mean, in, in Christian ministry, there are certain things that you say now that in 10 years could either cancel you or get you into a lawsuit. Mm. So you want to be careful to what you've left on a, on a tweet. And you see this in the secular world more often, but people are fired because in, in 2003 they said something that is no longer acceptable today. Well, so then, you know, say it and then delete it a month later when no one yeah. sees it anyways and they can't. Yeah. Um, there's like archaeological digs on your social media that happen. You want to make sure they don't find anything. The sands of time should destroy your social media account. And your friendship should primarily be in real life. Um, one thing I've learned is if you make a friend on social media, call them or meet them in real life. And if you don't do that, don't interact with them. Yeah, and, and, and one of the things that I've learned the value of is rigorously blocking and unfriending toxic voices. You, you, there are people that living in your neighborhood that you would never allow into your home because you just wouldn't you just wouldn't want to be exposed to that. It just wouldn't feel safe. You wouldn't want your kids hearing the way they talk. Why do you allow them in into your headspace? Uh, just That's it. yeah, and it, this is something I think people have to wake up to. Yeah, Gary. I think uh, for the pastors out there, it's important that you develop uh, a policy about social media use for your church. Yeah. Um, I would. We're, we're working on that with Redeemer City Church here in Aurelia right now. Yeah. I don't ever want a congregant to think um, that their social media feed is out of bounds for church discipline. 100%. Like, this is part of your identity. It's part of your witness. Yeah, we're going to look at your social media account. Yeah, we're going to call you out on it. And getting at the, all those things you talked about, I've, Rob. I've thought about right? quitting Facebook. One of the main reasons I haven't is because it's great for pastoral care. I, yeah. I can tell you that over the last 22 months... A few people have come on our radar as in, like, we need to do a face-to-face check-in. Are you okay? Mm -hmm. Based entirely on stuff I've seen them posting. We actually prayerfully considered that. Because that takes up some yeah. uh, uh, Pastor Levi Denbach's time. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> we said, sorry, brother. I think you need to stay on yeah. social media. Like, I don't have yeah. Facebook or anything like that because I'm just too busy. Yeah. Uh, but, like... We think that that's actually valuable as a pastor to be able to shepherd your flock effectively. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do think there's, and I'll throw out an idea, and maybe I won't stand by it, but the idea, <laughs> the idea would be that, right? yeah, this is great. I'm this, very interested. This isn't going anywhere. So uh, I was just thinking, you know, it, to some degree, maybe it is very important for pastors and elders to be engaged in social media as 
models and examples. Because maybe that's what we're missing. We're missing a lot of like, who do I look to that can be a great example of what I want to be? And the temptation could be the Luddite thing and just kind of disconnect and cut off everything. But I, I don't know. I think we need more examples of godly pastors and elders online engaging in, in these good ways yeah. and that we can follow after and model after. And so, especially for pastoral reasons, it's important for pastors and elders yeah. to be online. I, I would encourage um, that almost, like you saying, hey, maybe it's good to be online. I, I think you're right. And I'm trying to remember why, if you and I had this conversation last week or if I had it with Paul Martin, but I literally had this question. I think it was both of us, actually. Oh, was it? Okay. At separate times. Yeah, we're <laughs> sort of thinking, like... It, is is it so bad that that we should just all get off of it, and and to my mind, I th I really don't think we can as pastors. Meaning, I think there are lots of people in our church who would be far better off if if they were mostly or almost entirely off of it, uh, and, and yet I think to a certain extent it is an aspect of the public square. And we, just, we need to figure it out, though, meaning just being out there without understanding how it works or, or what it does is suicide. But being out with a game plan, with some limitations, and with some purposes. One of the things that, that shocks me is how Christians don't have a purpose for being on social media. Like, I ask people all the time, why are you sharing that? Like, so I will see stuff on a, on a Facebook post, and I will private message them and say, just out of curiosity, why are you sharing that? Like, what's the end game here? Because you can't vote in that election. So by sharing that information, all you're going to do is, is make half of your social media feed so angry at you that they'll never hear a gospel presentation from you. What is the end game? What is your strategy? And, and I think we need to set an example in that. Yeah, I think uh, um, Jean Twenge, I'm not saying, I don't know if I'm saying her last name right. She's sure got either. this quote, let your device be a tool you use, not a tool that uses you. Yeah, well said. Right? Like, and I think that's Absolutely. the redemptive move of social media. We got to be intentional as Christians. It is the public sphere. How are we being salt and light? How are we the fragrance of Christ? Uh, in that environment, because it yeah. is an environment that will not go away. Well, that's the that's where I wanted to land. But why did you have something you wanted to? I have so many opinions. But I'll, just, I'll just give you one. Uh, <laughs> Do you stand by them? Yeah, or? I, I, <laughs> so far I stand by. I don't stand by his. That's for sure. Yeah. I, I would I would say this is a, is a suggestion that churches might consider for their membership classes having yeah. a whole class on yeah. social media and that being part of your membership covenant. Totally. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> well, if we saw you running. Drunk and naked through the yes, actual yeah. town square, you would you would come up for a, some kind of church discipline. Somebody would call you. There'd be a talk. Uh, well, if you are acting like a lunatic in the virtual public square, there should be no difference. Hundred uh, percent. Can I, can I offer an idea for a good goal for social media? Yeah. Um, how about Romans fourteen nineteen? So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Yeah, yeah. That that governs. I try to have that govern 100% of what I post. I want it to encourage. I want it to uplift. I want it to be helpful for people. I'm not getting up there just to rant. I'm trying to do... This is a biblical command, by the way, that Paul gives for all Christians. So again, it's like we've, we already have a game plan. It's in the scriptures. The problem is just we deviate from it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's... Um, I agree with why, why and Paul, like pastors 
need, I think, should be on social media, again, as a way of monitoring opinion, as a way of sharing the gospel. I appreciate what you said, Paul, about having a strategy. I think the average Christian just doesn't, right? We don't, we don't really think through much of what we do. We kind of just go through life, right? And so I think as Christians, we, I, honestly, I think that the average Christian would be better served taking an extended break from social media in order to develop a strategy, in order to, to take, because we develop bad habits, right? So I think we need, most people would be well served from a big refresher, right, to take some time away so that we can come back at it with a strategy, with good habits in place, so that we can do that, right, because I, I, well, a lot of Christians right now are in a place where even if they tried to do that, it wouldn't be received because of their, their history, right, so I think it's, I it's tricky. totally agree, Scott, I think, um, yeah, I think, like, as an individual, not, not a pastor, not a leader in a church, I think, if you were to take the inventory of what are the fruits coming out of me putting being on these platforms, what are the positive influences in my life, and what are the negatives? Mm-hmm. And if you're being really honest with yourself, chances are those negatives are going to skyrocket compared to the positives. Mm-hmm. If we took, if we all took a really, really honest look at our hearts and what's going on out there, then I, I do think that that would be the case. So I think more often than not, most people, generally speaking, myself included need to take a step back from our engagement. And I won't speak to pastors because you guys have a different call and a different role And as leaders. Um, I would probably agree with everything that you guys have said, but I think as an individual, like unless you feel that you have the, um, the discipline to really be a godly presence on those platforms and that the Lord, you are accountable to the Lord in every single interaction you have on there, just keep that in check and maybe have someone hold you accountable in that way. Yeah. I think we're all saying the same thing, and, and I, I, I kind of want to use that to transition to our last thought. In, in a sense, we've talked about we're the first wave of parents trying to figure this out. Well, you guys are the first wave of young pastors trying to figure this out, too. So let's assume that we've all made some mistakes, kind of like the, you know, the first wave on, on D-Day. Uh, it, was, it was probably a disaster, but then you, if you're in the second wave, you learn some things. You, okay, there's some cover. Avoid that spot. We can learn, we can adapt, and, and do better. I don't think, uh, much as I've, I've personally had these thoughts, and I know everyone has, we probably all have thought, this is just a beach that can't be taken. This is just a no-win battle. And, and yet it, it remains a, a way to connect with people. It remains, there are people that you can only connect with in this way. It remains a tool that must be understood. And so I love this idea of taking a break, developing a strategy, coming back at this in a second wave of engagement that is more limited, more focused, more intentional. I think that's absolutely brilliant. And that's where I want to land. Let's talk about how do we heal because I, th- I think, I think uh, there are many casualties from our first attempts at, at making use of this tool. So how do we heal? How do we need to adjust? Uh, and, you know, I'll throw that out to the panel. Gary, you look ready to fire. I think, you know, it's a useful tool. It's incredibly useful, but it's no substitute. And I, th- I wonder if that's what mm. our teenagers and youngsters need to hear. Uh, you know, in that iGen book, the, the, the drop in rates of face-to-face peer interactions right. is stunning. That's just not healthy. Like, like for all the reasons you, you alluded to, learning how to communicate face-to-face, nonverbal uh, 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 communication, all those things, you don't learn those skills as a growing child when you're, when you're stuck online. I, I think, you know, that's a really important thing. It's no substitute for face-to-face. And I think we have to understand, especially for young children's, any screen use, 
social media or otherwise, uh, needs to be gated and have a goal. It can't be the, 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 the net nanny or something like that. That's going to harm the child's developing brain biologically, forget psychologically and spiritually, like all those things. And so I think as parents, uh, it would behoove us to be you know, very careful on the frequency, the dose of, of this thing that we're giving. Uh, and yet try to appreciate that there are some great things about it, like talking to grandma, the, 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 the ability to communicate when you can't be face-to-face, -face, but it's no substitute. I guess that's the thing I want to, I'm going to push on my, my kids anyway. Justin, you want to jump? Yeah, I'm going to tag on to, you know, a few things each of you have shared. You know, social media, it's not going anywhere. And I think we would be foolish to put our heads in the sand and, you know, try and move off grid and avoid and try and escape it because that's not going to help any one of us nor our teenagers. But I do want to tag on to the things that we've been talking about, you know, the heart issue and fruit of the spirit and who we are and taking a step back and being very intentional and purposeful as families in our households of how to navigate uh, with these devices and why we're putting um, you know, boundaries on them, the slippery slopes that they can take us down with lots of things. You've touched on alcohol, you've, you know, there's lots of different things that, you know, we can uh, bring into our lives that can, there can be good, but there can also be some big dangers. So walking with our kids, being accountable, I think those are big things that, you know, and discipling our kids through them, these are things that we really need to be very, very intentional about. You know, and as we've mentioned, I've mentioned before, we have four teenagers and um, I see the impact of, you know, communicating with them, talking about these things, but also providing opportunity for them to connect with their friends. Yes, the pandemic is lifting slowly, but, you know, as soon as we can, providing opportunities for them to hang out with their friends right. and, and, and be together and see each other and communicate and learn how to read each other's faces and actually have conversations. These things are crucial for our teenagers to learn to grow to be appropriate adults. Yeah, just I just I would love to jump on that too for Paul talking about healing and just this idea that I had this vision that the church would just be so much better served if we just cared more about what's around us in the world, right? We're so distracted by social media, right? We we see all the news from around the world, right? We know more about what's going on in New Zealand than we do with our neighbors, right? And I think like if the church took it seriously, took our job in their community, like in the community in the church and in our local community, right? If we cared more about one another right, than we did about what's going on in social media, the church would be a much better place, right? We really would be a light to the world, right? I think there would just, there'd be so much more health and vibrancy in the church, and it'd be more attractive. People wouldn't want to go on social media, right? It's, I think we, we can, we fall in kind of into this, this downward spiral, and I think we can, we can flip that around, I think, if, if we learn, right? And I think that's going to take intentional effort from everybody in the church, right? The church at large to care for one another, right? To, to, focus on, you know, ourselves rather than the world and be distracted by social media. I think if, if I was going to give advice for somebody wanting to recoup and regather and re-strategize, first of all, I'd say, don't go online and tell everyone you're fasting from social media, because <laughs> Jesus literally says, don't tell people that you're fasting. <laughs> Secondly, I would say, we just got to go back to the scriptures and just, let's just seek the teaching of how we are to act in this world. Let's study it. Let's just get a good grasp on that before we, we get back on because I just see it's not rocket science. I just see people just flagrantly disobeying the scriptures in the way that they're supposed to act. And we just got to, Thomas Watson says that a gracious man is the glory of the age that he lives in. And I just love that. It's like we've lost this ability to be graciousness. 
and we've almost like courage, we've treated courage like it's the antonym of kindness. And it's like we've, we've gotten so off track of what the scriptures say. So I think we need to, hey, if we're going to fast, let's just do what Jesus says and let's just take a break. Let's recoup. Let's study the word again. Let's get enthralled with the, the image of the people of God that the scripture presents us. And then let's pursue that um, everywhere we are. Why did you want to jump in on that? Yeah, I think maybe just uh, two really simple principles is that, that might be helpful is that social media itself, especially during a pandemic like this, has the capacity to make us plank people. You know, we're, we have a big plank in our eye, but we're looking at okay. every single twig. Because, Thank you oh. for unpacking that because I yeah. felt like maybe I was having a Gen X I thought you meant planking. You were... yeah. <laughs> I was thinking quantum physics, man. Platform uh, people, yes. planks. We're not, we're not quantum people, not quantum right. people. Thank you for unpacking that. Because it presents to us every problem in the world from A to Z. So being able to kind of disentangle that and to realize what it is. And then on the other hand, is, to, is what we've all said, is, is get back to verbal and nonverbal and personal communication and we can find Bible verses to justify everything at one level, you know, courage, not kindness, but I'm taken by Paul in Philippians 2 who says that the Word of God, in the, Christ in the form of God, humiliated himself by taking the form of a servant or slave. And precisely in this way, by being obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And the cross is a place not only of suffering, but of shame. So are we ready to take the shame of not being the smartest, of, of not owning people online, of being humiliated like Christ was for others? And I think if that is the kind of transformative thing, uh, mm-hmm. namely Jesus, <laughs> then that might help to disentangle us from being you know, plank people yeah. to being humiliated people in a good sense. That's good. One of the things uh, that I, I think we have the opportunity to do as this pandemic gradually, hopefully, comes to a close is to present a compelling alternative. Um, there's no doubt that for a lot of people, the, we, need, we need human interaction. And so during a pandemic where the best thing you can do for the safety and well-being of your community is to stay in your house, social media, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that, that people were driven a little deeper into that than, than was likely going to happen anyway. But so what can the church do when uh, the pandemic is over? I think one of the things we can do is provide a compelling alternative really emphasize face-to-face, really emphasize in-house hospitality, really emphasize human dynamics, Uh, make the church a place where we really prioritize in-person interaction. I think that is going to be healing. I think it's going to be restorative. But of course, part of what it means to be a compelling alternative is to do all these things the Jesus way. Let's not bring whatever dysfunction we picked up over the last 22 months Let's not bring it into our in-person gatherings. Let's, let's say, okay, pause, refocus. What did Jesus say? What did the scriptures say about how we're to interact? Okay, now let's, let's do that together. Let's do life together that way. And I think that is going to be very compelling to a culture because it's not just Christians who've been burned and frazzled by this reality. It's everybody. So I think this could be part and parcel of our witness moving forward. Gary, did you want to have a last word on that? Uh, maybe not that particular uh, slant, but just we have to appreciate and kids, we have to teach our kids to appreciate how formative this consumption is. Like it really does change our soul mm-hmm. and our minds and, and the way we interact. And, and so we've got to be really critical and suspicious almost of what's this person selling? 
why am I here? Like this yeah. sort of mindless scrolling, mindless posting. Like you, you talked about that, Paul, with like, why are people doing this? And it's because they're not sitting down and self-examining. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. Do not be deceived, right? Bad company corrupts good morals. We have to be aware we're shaped by our environments, and that includes yeah. our online environments. Well, Pastor Rob, we've talked about a lot of things. Uh, we've shared some things. Hopefully that'll be helpful to parents, individuals, uh, churches, communities. And uh, this is clearly a challenge. We're still, I think, safely to say, if we're still first wave on this. Uh, hopefully there's a second wave coming, a more intentional, more gracious second wave. <laughs> not, not in the pandemic. I don't like yeah. the wave language anymore. Right. Sorry. <laughs> that metaphor has been ruined Let forever. Let me go back to plank or uh, whatever you were talking yeah, yeah. about I over like there. I like that better. Right. A second attempt. How about that? And uh, we want to do better. And we can't do better in our own strength. We can only do better by the grace of God. Uh, so I'm wondering if you would be willing to just close us in prayer, lift what we've talked up, uh, pray for our, our parents watching on, pray for our kids. I, I can tell you, as a parent with five kids, uh, man, I, my, and my wife and I have talked about this many times, we just feel like we drew the short straw. Like it is harder to parent today than it, than it was in any previous generation. And we're, we're, we're praying and wrestling in prayer for our kids with the Lord. And uh, love for you to pray mm -hmm. for parents like me, uh, for our kids, for our churches, uh, and for ourselves moving forward. Would you yeah. be willing to do that? Absolutely, and you feel free to join us. Lord, we want to come to you and just bring everything we have discussed before you. And Lord, we're not up here as perfect people. We're not up here because we're sinless in this, Lord. We, we, we need your grace. Lord, we need your wisdom. Um, we want to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. And Lord, in this conversation, it's complex. There's a lot of things we've talked about. It's not just our reputations that we're talking about. We're trying to parent our kids. We're trying to be witnesses to the people next door who are looking in and trying to figure out what this Jesus thing is about. And our witness can deter people. And, and Lord, we just, we want to come before you and just say, we need you. Oh, how we need you. And Jesus, you have given us such a great model. You, you were mercifully compassionate. You were so gracious and so kind and yet so courageous and firm on the truth. What a perfect image of who you were, somebody who was strong in truth and, but, but, but tender and loving and caring. And Lord, we long to be people who reflect you well. We long to be useful for the kingdom. So Lord, we just pray for those listening in, for this, for this group here that's gathered. Lord, would you do that? Would you sharpen us as a church? We pray for the church. We pray for the church in Canada specifically, asking, Lord, that you would root out some of these sin issues and you would bring them to the forefront, that if it be your will, you would use this conversation to do that. We pray it would be a blessing. And we pray that we would more and more as the days go by reflect Christ. And what a harvest we look forward to seeing as we come out of this. What opportunity for Christ in the gospel. Lord, may we not... Uh, mess up this opportunity. What would you use us, we pray? Make us look more like Jesus so that he might get the glory and that all the nations, all the world would know him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, thank you to each of you for joining me. I really appreciate that. Thank you, listeners and watchers, uh, for joining in. Uh, it was a privilege to, to hear from all of you, and we'll look forward to doing another panel like this, should the Lord tarry and should the need arise in the future. Until then, take care and God bless.